everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and I'm solo with you this week. So I just want to take a moment to thank one of our listeners who left us a five-star review. So thank you, JDR012 from Washington County, Pennsylvania, for your kind words. And thank you to Tina, who reached out to us through our website's contact page. Tina is actually a sister of a friend of mine and my husband's who not only said she was enjoying our podcast, but even gave us a case suggestion, which I started researching, and that will be coming to you all within a few weeks. If you would like to reach out to us with any questions you may have for us, or even case suggestion, you can reach us through a couple of means. One way is through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On our site, you will find all of our show notes and resources we use, as well as our contact page. You can also go to our Facebook page with the same name and our Instagram page at Criminal Dis Pod. And we also have a YouTube channel, Criminal Discourse Podcast, where we put out little video snippets of our episodes. All right, well, we're going to get started right away. This week's case takes place on the Palmyra Atoll Islands, located south of the Hawaiian Islands and are part of one of the largest marine protected areas in the world. So if you're traveling south from Hawaii, the Palmyra Islands are approximately a thousand miles just due south. The Palmyra Islands are primarily unoccupied, but do have host a transient population made up mostly of scientists and researchers. Now, during World War II, it did house a U.S. naval base, which has long been abandoned. It is considered an incorporated territory of the United States and is under its sovereignty since 1911. Now, after World War II, the Palmyra Islands are mostly used as a stopover point for sailors traveling to Samoa. So on June 26, 1974, a small sailboat called the Iola docked at one of the makeshift harbors in Palmyra. The Iola had just traveled 19 days from Hawaii with only two crew members. Now, the Iola really wasn't meant for this sea journey, and when it arrived, its motor had frozen up and it was barely limping along. The Iola was a wooden sailboat, but the owners had covered the bottom with a layer of fiberglass in the hopes of making it more seaworthy. However, the friction between the two materials, the wood and the fiberglass, caused a crack in the hull, and it had taken on water. The Iola's owners also had very few provisions along with them. Their plan had been to live off the resources of the island and to grow a crop of marijuana that they planned to exchange for supplies that friends were to be bringing to them. Now, when they arrived, they found they were not alone, as had been their hope, as there were other boats in the harbor. Stephanie Stearns and Roy Allen introduced themselves to this impromptu welcoming committee. The other sailors noticed that Roy had the name Buck tattooed on his arm, and Stephanie claimed that Buck was Roy's nickname when questioned by it. Now, other impressions of the young couple were that Roy didn't really fit the image of someone who sailed or really even had a lot of experience with sailing. He had a rougher appearance and gave off this aura of being dangerous and not really a good vibe. So not long after the Iola had arrived, another yacht arrived in the harbor, the impressive sea wind. The new arrivals were Mac Graham, age 53, and his wife Eleanor, nicknamed Muff, who was slightly younger than Mac. Like Roy and Stephanie, they were surprised to see so many people. They had thought that Palmyra would be deserted. So the Grants had planned on staying around Palmyra for about six months. So as the various sailing groups were introducing themselves, Roy noticed that Mac was a smoker and he asked for a cigarette. Now, Roy did something then that was impolite due to resources being scarce when you're at sea. And that is he took 
The half pack of cigarettes Mac had handed over to him when he thought he was only going to take one out of it, he took it all. Roy did not make a good impression on the other group members either, especially when he started talking about his plans to grow marijuana in exchange for supplies. So the other group members really thought, okay, dude, something's not right. First of all, you're really foolish to go to sea without being prepared with adequate supplies and to even know if you can grow this crop. So Matt Graham had started to explore the Palmyra Islands, abandoned docks and military base, as that had been his purpose of wanting to visit Palmyra. He had also began making regular phone calls back to his friend in Hawaii. This was a weekly check-in he had with them, and he would update him as to his discoveries. Roy, meanwhile, was not enjoying the islands as much as Mac was. He found out that the soil was not really amenable to growing marijuana. So Roy and Stephanie were not prepared for life at sea and had quickly run out of supplies and started bartering their possessions for food with other yacht owners in the area. And their presence was quickly wearing thin with the others that found them to be more of a nuisance. So the other sailing couples had enough supplies for themselves and a little bit left over for emergencies, but not to supply a couple who really didn't prepare for their trip. The Grams, however, they felt bad for them and tried to include them in things and invited them on board their boat on July 5th, 1974. And when Stephanie and Roy arrived, they could see how the sea wind really outshined the Iola in every way. The sea wind was a was a top-notch sailing vessel. It had a state-of-the-art navigational system with plenty of supplies on board. The sea wind had already proven itself to be a seaworthy vessel as it had already been sailing around the world for quite some time. So this wasn't Mac and Muff's first sailing trip. So as the days went on, the Iola was not a very big boat. It was a very cramped boat. And soon Roy had moved into a makeshift tent on shore, but Stephanie chose to remain on board. Now their plans for that bountiful marijuana crop finally put a nail in it as the seedlings they had planted had all been eaten up by the island's insects. The young couple had pretty much by this time had run out of all their supplies. Now the island did have natural resources such as fish, crabs, bird eggs, and coconuts, but this young couple didn't really know anything about how to go about harvesting them. An example of this was Roy being out of his element was that he would shoot his 22 caliber handgun into the water at the fish. And he also used a chainsaw to cut down the coconut trees to get to the coconuts. Now, meanwhile, Matt Graham had been keeping up with his weekly contact with his friend in Hawaii, filling him in on the exploits of Stephanie and Roy. And Mac's patience with Roy was wearing thin, as he did not like Roy destroying the island's natural environment. So on July 13th, Muff Graham had written a letter to her mother, and Muff really wasn't all that thrilled with living off the Palmyra Islands to begin with, and Roy and Stephanie's presence added to that disillusionment. Now, Muff had given her letter to one of the other boat owners, Bernard and Evelyn Leonard, as they had been planning to leave the islands and go back to Hawaii, and when they got back, they would mail it. And that's kind of how the Grahams kept in touch with their various family members. They would, when they could, give the letters to someone who was going to a place where it could be mailed, and in turn, their family members would mail their letters to Mac's friend in Hawaii, and during their weekly radio contact, he would read their family members' responses to them. Now, in one of the mother's letters, she wrote that she was afraid for Mac and Muff and that they should leave Palmyra before something bad happened to them. So in mid-August, two men had arrived at the Palmyra Lagoon, Norman Sanders and Thomas Wolfe, who were on their way to Samoa. 
The night before Sanders and Wolf were to leave Palmyra, they had cocktails with the Grahams aboard the Sea Wind, and they cautioned the Grahams to be careful with Roy and Stephanie. Sanders had a run-in with Roy where he tried to give him some advice regarding his boat and suggested that he and Stephanie set sail for Samoa for more supplies. Roy didn't like being told anything, and he got really angry at that and told him to leave. So Matt Graham then took out a 357 Magnum showing the men and assured them that he could take care of himself and he was not afraid of Roy. By August 17th, the Sea Wind and the Iola were the only two boats left in Palmyra. On August 27th, Mac radioed his friend in Hawaii. Now, by this time, the Grahams had been alone for 10 days with Roy and Stephanie in the area, and things were not going well, and tensions were running high. Muff wanted to leave the area, but Mac stubbornly refused. While talking to his friend, he told him that Stephanie was on her way over to the sea when in her dinghy with what looked like a cake. He told his friend that perhaps they wanted a truce. So they signed off with plans to talk again on the same day at the same time the following week. So Mac's friend radioed the following week as planned, but there was no response from the sea wind. He tried again a couple days later, and he tried again over the following weeks, but still no reply. So Mac's friend tried to get authorities involved, but they declined to investigate at the time. So he found a friend who would fly over the Palmyra Islands to see if they could spot the sea wind. And when they did, they found that the area was completely void of any boats. No Iola, no sea wind. Mac's friend feared the worst, feeling that something had happened to Mac and Muff and that Roy and Stephanie had something to do with it. His friend decided to reach out to any yachtsman in the Pacific. So the Pacific Ocean, he's reaching out over the radio, asking if anyone has seen the sea wind. Months pass with no word or sighting of the Grahams. So in October of 1974, the Leonards, who had taken the letter from Moff to mail to her mother when they got back to Hawaii, Bernard Leonard had spotted a 38-foot catch with distinct lines in a Honolulu marina and it looked like the sea wind, but it had been repainted. So as he's looking at this boat and he's recognizing it as the sea wind, he also sees Roy Allen standing up on the deck of the yacht. So Bernard immediately contacted the Coast Guard, who had been aware of the search for the sea wind. When told that he hadn't seen the Grams, the Coast Guard reached out to the FBI as they felt this might lead to something outside their jurisdiction. So you have the boat that Bernard recognizes as the sea wind, and it had been painted over, and the person on deck didn't own that yacht. So the FBI agent from the Hawaiian field office was assigned and met with Bernard and the Coast Guard at the yacht harbor. Now the agents didn't feel that they would probably be involved in this because perhaps the owners had sold the boat or the owners were on shore at the time. Bernard pointed out to authorities that the yacht's appearance had been altered from the taking off the nameplate, the sea wind, and trying to paint over it and repainting parts of the boat. Now, since there was no activity on the boat, the Coast Guard decided to post a lookout to see if anyone showed up. And Roy and Stephanie were spotted the next morning coming ashore in a small rowboat. They were flagged down by another boat owner before they could approach the shore that told them that the Coast Guard had been looking at their boat the other day. Now at the same time, Roy noticed a Coast Guard boat in the harbor coming towards them. So Roy changed directions and headed to the nearest dock where he jumped off and Stephanie was left in the rowboat and started rowing back towards the sea wind. 
So two Coast Guard officials closed in on the man who had then dove off the pier and started to swim away. However, when he dove off the pier, he left his wallet behind. And in that wallet was a driver's license with Roy Allen's name on it. Now, meanwhile, the Coast Guard boat closed in on Stephanie's rowboat. And so she kind of changed directions and was rowing to shore, hoping to make it there before they caught up. And she did. She made it to the dock and took off running with a Coast Guard officer giving chase. Stephanie had taken off into a hotel and ran up the stairwell, but was soon found hiding behind a potted plant. And she was taken to the Coast Guard offices for questioning. Now, Bernard and Stephanie were put in Stephanie's rowboat, which was towed to the Coast Guard offices. Now, while on this rowboat, Bernard asked about the Grams and if they were still alive. Stephanie indicated no, saying that they had drowned, or at least that is what she thought. She claimed that they had been invited over the sea wind for dinner one night, but the Grams were nowhere to be found. The next morning, they had found the Grams' inflatable Zodiac boat overturned and washed up on shore in the shark-infested lagoon. So Roy and Stephanie then tried to take their boat back to Hawaii, but it got stuck on the reef, so they decided to take the abandoned sea wind instead. So back at the Coast Guard offices, Stephanie told her story again this time to the FBI. Now, Stephanie's Miranda rights were read to her, but she didn't seem to heed the warning about her right to remain silent, and she begins to repeat the story she told Bernard. She told the agents she and Roy arrived right before dinner, but no one was aboard. Roy told Stephanie that they had been invited over, and perhaps the Grams were out fishing for their dinner. So the couple decided to make themselves at home until the Grams returned. And then, as it was going later in the evening, they decided to spend the night upon the sea wind. So the next morning, when the Grams didn't return, they went out looking for them, and that is when they found the washed-up Zodiac on shore. They then spent the next two days searching for the Grams, but found no trace of them. Next, she said they left the island in the sea wind, towing the Iola behind them. But soon the Iola got caught up on the reef and sank. The FBI does hold jurisdiction over crimes on the high seas, and based upon the story that Stephanie had told, she was placed under arrest for interstate transportation of stolen property. Now, while Stephanie is placed under arrest, authorities are still searching for Roy, who had evaded police in the marina. Having Roy's picture and knowing about Roy trying to grow the marijuana gave the FBI a starting point in their search for him. But there was a problem, as there was no record of a Roy Allen. So the FBI took Roy's photo to the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, who recognized the picture as that of Buck Walker, whom the DEA was also searching for. Buck Dwayne Walker was a convicted felon and fugitive. He had been awaiting sentencing on a drug conviction when he and Stephanie had absconded on the Iola. Now, fearing for the Grams, the FBI traveled to the Palmyra Islands to see if they had been stranded there. And after they arrived, they found the abandoned camp that Roy had made on the beach. They also had found the Iola hatch cover on shore, which told agents that Roy and Stephanie had planned on scuttling the Iola, as no one would go to sea without a hatch cover for their vessel, meaning it didn't get caught up on the reef and sink. So a theory started to develop where perhaps Stephanie and Roy had tied the Grams up, put them on the Iola and sank the Iola to cover up their crimes. So on November 8, 1974, Buck Walker resurfaced at an area restaurant. For the past 10 days, he had been hiding out in the lava flows on the big island of Hawaii. Now, by happenstance, two uniformed police officers were eating in the same restaurant. When the waitress came by, they had shown her Buck's picture to see if she recognized the man, and she pointed him to the bar and said, yeah, that's him. I sent him there for a drink. 
The officers spotted him and notified the FBI, and Buck was taken into custody on the fugitive warrant without incident. Now, unlike Stephanie, who talked during her questioning, Buck gave nothing away, only answering questions yes or no. Now, Stephanie, who was in jail at this time, had also inadvertently given the FBI more evidence to use against her and Buck. She had sent some photos off to be developed while she was in jail, and those photos were intercepted by authorities. One photo showed Stephanie standing on the sea when taking a picture of Buck sailing the Iola. The U.S. Attorney's Office still didn't feel, though, there was enough evidence to charge Stephanie and Buck with the murders of the Graham. It was a circumstantial case, and if they lost, they would not be able to charge them again should their bodies ever be discovered. Instead, Stephanie and Buck were charged with interstate transportation of stolen property, which was a pretty open and shut case, and both were found guilty. Buck got 10 years for his original drug conviction and five years for the stolen property. Stephanie received two years. So in January 21st, 1981, a South African couple, Robert and Sharon Jordan, were visiting the Palmyra Islands. Sharon was taking a walk down the beach when she discovered an aluminum container washed up on shore containing human remains. Now, around one of the bones that had washed up was a gold wristwatch. Sharon, having heard about the disappearances of the Grahams, contacted the Coast Guard immediately. The FBI flew out to Palmyra to try to verify if, in fact, the bones were one of the Grahams. The yellow container was similar to two missing containers the FBI agents had found in an abandoned warehouse years earlier. So when they had gone to the island in search and they found the makeshift camp and they found the hatch, they had also searched the abandoned Navy warehouses and they came across two yellow aluminum containers. But there were two others missing. So divers were sent into the ocean to search for the other container, but they could not find it. The only thing they ran across were sharks. So all the bones found in the container were sent off to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. So through examination, the skull was identified as belonging to a Caucasian female in her late 40s to early 50s. And dental records would confirm that it was Muff Graham. The skull also showed charring and a hole in the left eye socket, which was consistent with a gunshot wound. But investigators could not say conclusively it was due to a bullet due to its deteriorated state. Now, Stephanie, who had served her time in Hawaii, had moved back to California and was working at the time when authorities paid her a visit, this time to arrest her for the murder of Muff Graham. Now, the FBI thought Buck was still in prison in Washington state because that's where he was sentenced originally on his drug conviction. So when they went to serve him, they found out that he had escaped after serving 42 months, which is about three and a half years of a 10-year sentence with the addition of the five. So it should have been 15. So authorities found out that a woman had visited Buck the day before his escape. So the FBI put a trace out on the make and model of her car and that led them to a hotel in Nevada where Buck was taken into custody when he had exited the hotel. So Buck and Stephanie's trials were held separately in San Francisco due to the publicity the Graham's case had in the media. So that's why it wasn't taken back to the hotel. Hawaiian Islands. The motive, according to prosecutors, was theft and desperation since their boat was not seaworthy and they were running out of provisions. The prosecutor needed to prove that Muff did not drown and needed to show that Muff had been inside that aluminum container. They also showed that the Zodiac wouldn't have worked if it had been found the way Stephanie and Buck said it was, overturned on the beach, as it was not designed to be overturned that way. Besides, the Zodiac 
was with the sea wind when it was docked in Hawaii. So the San Francisco medical examiner testified and confirmed the findings of the original FBI examiner about the skull and the bullet hole and it being a match for Muff Graham. The medical examiner also showed that the skull had been flattened on the left side of the face, showing that it had been lying for quite some time against a hard surface, such as that of the container. Now, experts term that coffin wear, and that is not seen when something is buried on a soft surface, such as sand or dirt, only on hard surfaces, meaning the wear to muff skull came from the hard lining of the aluminum container and not the bottom of the harbor. What made this case difficult to prosecute was subpoenaing of witnesses, as the majority of the witnesses had lived or traveled by boat. So they had to track down all these different sailors who had run-ins with Buck and Stephanie in Palmyra, and they, most of them were at sea. Now, Stephanie's defense was that she blamed Buck Walker for the murder. At the time, she didn't have a criminal record compared to Buck. Stephanie did testify on her own behalf and was able to give her version of events. Now, Stephanie's defense attorney was famed Vincent Bugliosi, who believed that she was innocent. Stephanie had come from money and was able to afford the high-priced attorney. Now, Vincent Bugliosi was known for his prosecution of Charles Manson and the Manson family members of the Tate LaBianca murders. So by this time, he had gone into private practice. And the high-priced attorney worked because Stephanie ended up being acquitted of all charges, with the jury believing the defense theory that it was Buck who acted alone and concealed what he did from her. Now, Buck Walker, I don't think he had a high-priced attorney, and he was not as fortunate as Stephanie and was found guilty, receiving a life sentence. However, Buck Walker was paroled from federal prison in 2007. He was in his 70s by that time and in poor health, and he died of a stroke in 2010. Now, a sad twist to this story is 28 years after Stephanie's acquittal and Buck's conviction for the murder of Muff Graham, her remains stayed in FBI custody. The one article I had read is this is all the way up into 2014. She had never received a formal burial. Now, one writer had attempted to raise funds to bury Muff back in San Diego, where the Grams were originally from. As of the publication of that article, which I think was around 2014, 2015, her remains remained in FBI custody. And to this day, Matt Graham's remains have never been found. So that is the case of the millionaire murders, as Mac, as Mac and Muff Graham were considered millionaires at the time. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, we would only ask you to leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. And if you leave a five-star review, we would appreciate it even more. So thank you all for listening. I hope next time you tune in, Maddie will be with us. And as always, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle that it takes to solve a crime. So until next time, take care, be safe, and remember to be kind. Bye. Bye.